0: Today we're going to finish out our series on the book of Exodus. You say, well, we haven't finished every chapter in the book of Exodus. No, we haven't. Uh, We're going to pick up next year, Lord willing, and finish the book of Exodus. But today I want to take you to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. As we think about a message I'm calling Rules, Rescue, and You... You know, being back in Valdosta, I don't know if you know that, but that's where I'm from. I was originally uh, born Mobile, Alabama, but Valdosta, Georgia Lake Park, is actually home for me. And we also lived for a time in Albany, Georgia, when I was in elementary school. I remember going to the Magnolia Elementary School, and I had a teacher who was not my favorite teacher. Her name was Mrs. Fort, and Mrs. Fort was a serious educator. She was serious about educating young minds. I was not so serious about being educated. And so sometimes she and I uh, kind of butted heads. I remember one day when I was being a little mischievous in class, she took me out in the hallway, and that scared me silly. I had seen other students being taken out in the hallway. We never saw them again. And so I didn't know what happened in that hallway, but I knew I was in trouble. I was worried she had send me to the principal's office. I'd heard horror stories of an electric paddle that the principal had in his office. In my young mind, I could not imagine how they hooked you up to an electric paddle. I didn't want to find out. Later that week, she gave us all a test. She passed out the test papers, told us to do our work quietly at our desk, and then after the time had elapsed, she collected those papers The next morning, we came back to class, and Mrs. Fort had graded our test, and she handed them out. And when she placed my test on my desk, I had noticed a big red F circled at the top of my test. I had failed that test. And all over the test, there were X's where I had made a mistake or I had gotten an incorrect answer. And that was a very humiliating moment to realize you have failed the test. And in that moment, Mrs. Fort was not a good teacher as far as I was concerned. She was not a good teacher. Other people said she was a good teacher, but I didn't think she was so good in that moment. Something later that day, though, happened that changed my perspective of Mrs. Fort. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the reason I tell you that story from my childhood is because I see something similar happening when we look at the Ten Commandments that God gave the Hebrew people here in Exodus chapter 20. We see God giving these Ten Words, these Ten Commandments that He expects them to live by, these Ten Regulations, these Ten Rules that will eventually be fleshed out in even greater detail for the people of Israel. those people, when they received those rules, quickly started rebelling against those rules. It's almost as if the attitude of the people's heart were, God, who are you to tell us how to live? God, who are you to regulate my lifestyle? God, what do you mean putting these rules on my life? I don't know about you, but I can relate to the ancient Hebrew people in that way. Sometimes, whenever I come to know the will of God for my life and the way He expects me to live, I rebel against that. I don't want God telling me how to live. I don't want God controlling me. I want to be able to control my own life. And often we recognize that even if we try to live by the Ten Commandments, that we still fail. We still mess up. We still fail the test. And we can rebel against God. God, why would you place these impossible standards on me? that condemn me and make me feel like a failure. And sometimes maybe our attitude is God's rules are not so good. and Maybe by inference, God is not so good. But dear friend, I pray that today, in the few moments we have together, your perspective of the Ten Commandments will change. That you'll have a new appreciation for the role that God expected these Ten Commandments to play in the, the lives of the Hebrew people and our relationship to the Ten Commandments as New Testament followers of Jesus. And so I pray that by the end of our time today, you'll have a new appreciation for the Ten Commandments. But more than that, you'll have a new appreciation for God. Now, I want to take you to Exodus 20, beginning with verse 1. And as I think about the Ten Commandments, I, I have three words that just come to my mind that over the years I have kind of filed a way to help me Think about the Ten Commandments. And and maybe you'll find this helpful or maybe you won't. But the first word that I think of when I think of the Ten Commandments is the word insight. Insight. The Ten Commandments give us an insight into God's character. The Ten Commandments give us an insight into God's heart. And here's the key insight that you need to keep in mind as we walk through the Ten Commandments today. Love before law. That's the insight that God wants to reveal to us at the very beginning as he lays out these 10 words, these 10 commandments for his people. If you want a glimpse of his character, keep this in mind. Love before law. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1, we read God saying this to Moses and the people of Israel. And God spoke all these words saying, here's verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want to stop right there for a moment. Love before law. The first thing God does for the Hebrew people before he gives them the law is he reminds them of who he is as their Lord He wants them to know who he is in relationship to them so that they will recognize the one who is giving these laws. They'll see an insight into his heart. And he says to them, before he gives the Ten Commandments, don't forget who I am. I am the Lord your God. I have chosen you by my sovereign grace. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The reason God says you are not slaves at this very moment under the taskmasters in Egypt is because I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out. I saved you. I redeemed you. Know how much I love you and how much I have done for you. And so God is calling them to remember that. And listen, God does the same for us today as well. He wants us to remember who he is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. You've got to keep the perspective of who this is who's giving these rules to us, who is saying, this is how I expect you to live. He's not some harsh taskmaster. He is a good God. He is a loving Lord. He is a redemptive Savior, and he wants us to keep that in mind before we get into the law. Because if we don't trust God's heart, we'll rebel against his word and his will. Of course, how did the people of Israel respond to God, having done all of this for them? Well, we've already seen it in our study so far in the book of Exodus. Even though God has redeemed them through the ten plagues that fell on the Egyptians, even though God has redeemed them through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Passover lamb, even though God has redeemed them through the parting of the Red Sea, and even though God has sustained them in the wilderness with manna in the morning, with water when they're thirsty, with protection when they're afraid. How do they respond? They respond with grumbling against God, rebelling against God and God's leader Moses. They become a complaining, negative people. They even say, we wish we were back in Egypt. God, why have you led us out here? Moses, why did you lead us out here? So in the face of God's grace, they still grumble. And yet in the face of their grumbling, God says, I'm still the Lord your God. I have brought you out. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. I have saved you. And no matter what you do, you cannot change the fact, I am the Lord your God. Whether you like it or not. It's like a petulant child who stomps her feet and says to her mommy, I hate you. It doesn't change the fact she's still mommy and she still loves her. God, out of a heart of love is wanting to help his people know how to live in relationship to their newfound freedom in him. And notice God does not say, Israel, if you live right, I'll set you free. No, instead God says, because I've set you free, let that motivate you to live right. Right. Sometimes we think that Christianity is just one religion among many and there's not really much of a difference between Christianity and other religions, but that's not true. Every other religious system is based on you do all these right things and you might have hope of heaven one day. But Christianity does not say, do this and you'll live. Christianity says, because of God's grace we live, now we get to do this. Now we get to live for him. We don't live for God and seek to please Him and obey Him to earn our salvation. We cannot do it even if we try. We don't live for God to earn it. We live for God to express our salvation, to show the world I've been redeemed by God. And this is what a redeemed person looks like. And this is how a redeemed person lives. That's why We read in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't say, clean up your life and then I might die for you. Then I might save you. Then I might redeem you. No, it was love before law. And you got to keep that in perspective. Love before law. Don and I are blessed with three children. And we've not been perfect parents. But one thing I know, we love our kids. And we wanted them to know that we expected them to obey us and to respect us and to honor us. Not because we laid down rules and regulations, but because they knew our heart. That even when they didn't understand mom and dad's rules and regulations, they knew mom and dad loved them and that mom and dad had a good heart and a good intent for them. And that we weren't trying to harm them with our rules and regulations, we were trying to actually help them. And dear friend, on a much higher, holier plain than this human family of the Powell's. God wants you to know his rules and regulations aren't to harm you, they're to help you. It's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you that he gives us his standard for how we are to live. So keep that in mind when you think of the Ten Commandments, the word insight. We have an insight into God's character. His love comes before his law. The second word, though, that I think of when I think of the Ten Commandments are is the word instruction. Not only insight into God's character, but instruction. What does love require? And the Ten Commandments spell out what love for God and for other people requires of me. Insight and instruction. So do you recall when Jesus was asked about what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? By Jesus' time, the Hebrew people not only had the Ten Commandments, but they actually had a total of 613 commandments that helped them flesh out the Ten Commandments in their daily lives. And someone tried to trip up Jesus and ask him a trick question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36 of Matthew 22, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And notice how Jesus replies, verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. He says, that is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said in verse 38, this is the Great and first commandment. And the second is like it. They didn't ask him what is the second. But like a good preacher, he's going to give you more than you bargained for. And so he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says if you want to understand what God is trying to say to you through the whole Old Testament, through the Ten Commandments and the 613 commandments, it is this. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. Love God supremely. Love other people sincerely. That's what God is trying to teach you. Jesus says that's the Cliff Notes version of all the commandments. Remember, they have spark notes now. So, whenever you haven't read the book, but you got a book report due. And so you try to buy that the night before and you read the cliff notes and then you write your paper and your teacher sees right through it. Not that I've ever done that. I've heard of students who tried that. Jesus says, let me give you the cliff notes of the Old Testament. Love God, love your neighbor, and do it perfectly. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor just like you love yourself. In fact, whenever you look at the Ten Commandments, you recognize that those are two divisions of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments teach us how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The final six teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. So loving God is found in the first four commandments. Go back to Exodus 20. Look at verse 3. God starts giving the law. You shall have no other gods before me, That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God. No other gods before me. Many companies require people who work for them or who are leaving the company to sign a non-compete clause. It means you won't leave this company and go work for a competitor for a period of time. Or you won't go and start your own company that will compete with your original company. And God says, I'm going to ask you to sign a no-compete clause. There will be no rivals for me. I'm the one true living God. You shall have no other gods before me. And why does God require it? Why does God demand it? Because he deserves it. He is the one and only God. He is your creator. He is your redeemer. He is your sustainer. And no person, no place, no thing is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God says, I don't want you to also carve anything and worship it. God knows the tendency of the human heart is to not only create something, but to worship what we create. If I take out a picture and say, this is my wife, You know that's not my wife. It's just a representation of my wife, but it's not a perfect representation of my wife. And God says no carved images because the moment you try to represent me with a tangible thing, you begin to misrepresent me. It'll never do me justice and you don't bow down and worship what you have created because God says I will not be managed. I will not be marginalized. I will be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Today, we don't have idols. Oh, yes, we do. We call them cars. We call them houses. We call them money. We call them power. We call them fame. And we worship those things or those places or those people. And you say, what's an idol for me? Anything that is more important that takes your attention away from the one true God and that you give your life to. God continued in verse 5 about these idols. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is not an evil, sinful jealousy. This is a righteous jealousy. Like a husband or a wife that wants to protect their marriage, that's a healthy thing. This is not an unhealthy jealousy. God says, I'm the Lord your God. I don't want anybody else crowding in on our relationship because they don't deserve to be here. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you hate me and you rebel against me and you elevate and worship other gods before me, don't be shocked when you lead the next generation to follow in your footsteps. But he's also the God who shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To take the name of the Lord in vain is to take it emptily. It is to just use it for your own prerogative rather than to use it in prayer or in praise or in supplication to God. It is to use God's name deceptively. For example, using God's name when you falsely take an oath that you know good and well you're not going to keep. Well, I swear to God, I will, knowing good and well you're not going to. Or taking God's name disrespectfully, using God's name as a curse word, cursing other people created in the image of God and using God's name to do it, taking God's authority and God's character and using it for your sinful purpose. God says, that's off limits. You will not do it. And you won't do like the Egyptians did with their pagan gods that they created And use my name like some magical talisman or abracadabra that you can just use my name and expect to get whatever you want. Jesus taught us whenever we pray, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, let your name be holy and safe and protected in my mouth. Then the fourth commandment, look at verse 8. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God says to the Hebrew people, you will set apart the seventh day to worship me. And it's rooted in creation that God created everything in six days and then he rested on the seventh, not because he was tired and exhausted. He rested so that he could enjoy what he had created. It is good. It is very good. And God wants to weave that pattern into his Hebrew people's lives. That they work six days, but they rest on the seventh, and they reflect on the seventh of how good God has been to them. And they refocus their attention on God on that seventh day so that they can be better prepared for the week ahead of them. Now, Sometimes we as New Testament Christians get tripped up on this Because we look in the New Testament and the New Testament church began worshiping on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. Rather than Saturday, the Christians began worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why? Because it was Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. It was Sunday that they commemorated that the shadow of the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus who is our rest. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, don't let anybody else judge you or condemn you about which holidays you observe or don't observe, which feasts or festivals you observe, and don't let them judge you or condemn you about Sabbaths. Sometimes people want to condemn you if you don't worship on Saturday rather than Sunday. But as New Testament followers of Jesus, we are free. As long as the principle of the Sabbath is protected, that there has to be a time we stop we rest. We refocus on God. And we get ready for the rest of the week to live for Him that He has for us. There's a lot more we could say about all these commandments. But you see the first four help us to love God supremely. The final six, regulate our love for neighbor. Look at Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has giving you. And all the parents said... Amen. So no matter matter your age or stage in life, as long as your parents live, you are to honor them, which is not always to obey them. When you become an adult, you don't have to obey your parents anymore, but you honor them by showing them the respect for their person. And if you can't show them respect for their person, you at least show as much respect as you can for their position. And God says, I want my people to regulate how they love their neighbor by starting at home. Listen, if your Christianity doesn't impact your living at home, your Christianity is not real. I don't care how sweet you are at church and how nice you are to everybody at church. If you go home and treat your parents with disrespect, your faith is questionable. God's not honored in that. Verse 13, you shall not murder. The sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You say, whew, finally one I don't have any trouble with. I think about it, but I don't do it. Only in traffic, right? God is protecting the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Life is created by God and is sacred to God and should be protected by God's people. Abortion, by the way, is wrong because abortion takes an innocent life. Both science and common sense tell you that that unborn baby is a human being and is worthy of respect. Remember, Jesus, however, reminded us about murder. He says, even if you say, I hate my brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. That doesn't mean you've actually taken a person's life. Jesus says, that's the seed of murder. When you disregard the sanctity of another human life, maybe you wouldn't kill them physically, but you assassinate their character you shall not murder. He also says the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery because God is a promise-keeping God, because God is a covenant-keeping God. He expects his people to be like him. And when you make a vow in marriage, it is holy, and you ought to keep that vow. Adultery is sex outside of your marriage, and God says that is off-limits. Maybe you say, "Who? I haven't messed up on that one either." But remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, "I tell all of you men, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart." There again, he's not saying you've done the deed. He's just saying that's where the seed is that often leads to that deed if you don't do something about it. Verse 15, "You shall not steal." You don't take what belongs to another person. You don't take their property. You don't take their reputation. You don't take the credit for the work that they do as your own. You don't steal from the government by not paying the taxes that you legally owe. Thou shalt not steal. And God even warned his people in Malachi chapter 3 that they were stealing from him when they refused to pay their tithes and their offerings to God in worship. Verse 16, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't lie about another person. You don't spread unfounded gossip and conspiracy theories. You don't defame another person's reputation. You don't slander them in court or you don't slander them in the court of public opinion. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Lies undermine our trust in each other and our trust in our institutions. And America is seeing what happens when we lose faith in people and institutions, often because of the truth and most often because of lies and gossip and rumors and innuendo and unfounded allegations. Jesus says, I am the way the truth And the life, and God says, if you're going to be mine, you'll be a person of truth. And then finally, verse 17, you shall not covet. That's a passionate desire to have what you don't have that someone else has. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. I love reading this in the King James Version, but I won't. Or anything that is in your neighbor's, the kids in children's church. Always laugh when we read this in the King James Version. You say, well, this is an attitude coveting. I don't do anything, but I, I want to. It. It's the attitude that gets to the heart of the problem. God says a spirit of covetousness means you don't trust me to provide for your needs, and you're not grateful for what you have. You're only thinking about what you don't have, as if I'm holding out for you. And people often compromise their values because of a spirit of covetousness, they do things to get what they don't have that they would never have done otherwise. And God says, I'm warning you to to covet is off limits. Now, if you're like me, you look at this and you go, this is impossible. I, I maybe do okay on one or two of those, but I've messed up on this one and I'm not really good at that one. And it doesn't help whenever you hear in the book of James, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament saying, if you break one commandment, you're as guilty as if you broke them all. You go, what in the world then? I'm already condemned. I've already messed up. I'm a lawbreaker. I've rebelled against God because I don't love God like he deserves. And I don't love my neighbor like they deserve and like God expects of me. So I'm already a failure. And that's the third word that comes to mind. Not the word failure, but the word Invitation. When I think of the Ten Commandments, I think of insight, love before law. Uh, I think of instruction. What does love require of me? Love for God, love for my neighbor. But when I really understand the Ten Commandments, I think of the word invitation. Invitation to, first of all, humility. I am a sinner on my best day. I am a failure when it comes to God's standards. Not only have I not lived up to God's standards, I don't even live up to my own standards of right or wrong and I'm a failure, and it humbles me. Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. We can't do it. And that wasn't meant for us in the law. Paul says the law simply shows us how sinful we are. You know what that test that I got the big old fat F on taught me? It taught me, To be humble taught me that I didn't know it all. It taught me there's one that knows more than I know in this classroom, and it humbled me. I mentioned to you that Ms. Fort did something later that day that changed my whole perspective on her. I thought she was a bad teacher because she was honest about my failures, blamed her for my mistakes, blamed her because I didn't study. But later that day when the class was doing more quiet work, Mrs. Fort, I'll always remember this. Mrs. Fort walked over to my desk and she knelt down. She took my paper. She walked through every question and helped me understand the right answers. Helped me correct my paper. And before it was done, she marked out the F and put an A plus on my paper. I didn't deserve that. It was all grace grace. And can I promise you, God has done something far greater than Mrs. Fort ever did for me or your school teachers ever did for you in helping you get through a course that you had messed up and failed in. Jesus doesn't just come and take the test and change the answers and let you do better. He took your test in your name and he got it right right perfectly, all the way down the line. He got an A plus because he's the only one who ever has loved God supremely, sacrificially, willingly, and he's the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself, even dying for us on the cross. And he says, Father, I've passed the test, but I took that test in Ricky's name. Give him credit. I'll take his F. I took the test in her name Give her credit for my A. I'll take her F. I'll take the punishment for all their sins, for all their mistakes. And he went to the cross of Calvary willingly. And he died for me and for you. He took our punishment and he gives us credit for his righteous life. That is why Romans chapter 7 verse 24 says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And Paul gives the answer. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the answer. I don't know what test you're facing, and I don't know what questions are on your test, but here's the Sunday school answer, Jesus. He's always the right answer. Jesus, Jesus, you need him as your Lord and your Savior. You need him to forgive you of your sin. You need to receive his free gift of grace by turning from your sin, and confessing it to him and receiving his forgiveness and his eternal life. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved. You're not saved by doing this and not doing that. For by God's unmerited, undeserved love you are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast or brag. Will you receive his gift of forgiveness right now? Maybe you've already done that. Rejoice in that. And now you can can say, God, I want to live for you not to earn your love, not to earn my salvation from sin, but to express my love for you, to express my gratitude for what you've done for me. God, I want to live for you because you've done so much for me. But if you've never received Christ as your Savior, whether you're in the room or you're online, let this be the moment. You trust Christ. Let's pray together, and I will help you do that right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. And we know that the law is good. It's good like a teacher. It points us to the answer. It points us to the truth. It points us to Jesus. And we know the law cannot save us, but it points us to Jesus who can through his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary where he offered his perfect righteous life in exchange for our sinful lives. And having died on the cross, he rose from the dead. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the penalty of their sin. So God, if there's someone today watching or someone in this room who needs Jesus as their savior in this moment, may they talk to you. Dear God, I admit to you, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've not loved you or loved others like I should, but I believe Jesus is your son who lived a perfect life, who died for me on the cross who rose from the dead on the third day. And because he's alive, he hears me right now as I pray. And Jesus, I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I put my faith in you as my Lord and my Savior. Heavenly Father, I thank you that people right now are making that decision to trust Christ. May they not be ashamed to let us know in the comment section or to let us know on the Let's Connect card that today they committed their life to Christ or to come up to me after the service and say, today I've committed my life to Christ. And God, for the rest of us who have already trusted Jesus as our Savior, let us leave this place today more committed to living for Jesus because he gave his life for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.